you know, I usually tell people to optimize for learning and optimize for the opportunity to see different things. And welcome back to Off Record with your host, Corey Levy. Today, we speak to entrepreneur and investor Justin Kahn, who is well known for being the founder of Justin.tv turned Twitch.tv, a live streaming powerhouse that was bought by Amazon for close to a billion dollars. He is also a partner for Y Combinator and recently has started video Q&A platform Whale and is the CEO of legal startup Atrium. In this week's episode, Justin tells us how he got into technology, the story of selling his first startup on eBay, the inception of his billion-dollar startup Twitch, some of the crazy moments building the company, and what he's learned and observed over the years as a founder and his strategies on recruiting top talent. There's that and many more. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Off Record. Thank you so much, Justin, for taking the time this afternoon. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me, Corey. Yeah, so I'd like to get started by asking, how did you get involved in tech? You went to Yale, you didn't study computer science, you're not technical. Can you tell us how you got involved in technology? Sure, yeah. So I went to Yale and I was a physics and philosophy undergrad in uh, back in 2000, graduating in 2005. And so I first started in tech when one of my friends and I decided it was a good opportunity to start a company while we were in school because we had almost no opportunity cost. You know, our opportunity cost was playing World of Warcraft and uh, drinking beer. And so we thought it was a good time to try something. And we were brainstorming company ideas and came up with the idea of building something that was kind of like Gmail, which was new at the time, but a calendar accompaniment. And so I wasn't exactly non-technical. I was a programmer at the level of a physics major, which is to say a pretty shitty programmer. But I ended up partnered with a friend of ours, a friend of mine from childhood, and who also happened to be going to Yale, who's a CS major, Emmett Shear. And the three of us were working on this calendar app, and that was kind of our our start in the technology world. Uh, Eventually, we got the app funded by Y Combinator in the very first batch of startups and decided to go full-time on starting a startup. And was this the company that you sold on eBay? That's right. So eventually, fast forward one year, we had raised a small angel round, been funded by YC, but it wasn't working. At least it wasn't working very well for us. Google Calendar had come out and really dominated the market with, to be honest, a, a superior product. And so we ended up deciding to get rid of the company and we were trying to sell it the traditional way, but that didn't work out very well. The buyers that we talked to all ghosted on us. And, uh, you know, some major Silicon Valley companies in there, but nobody really ended up being very interested. So we ended up deciding to list the company on eBay. Long story short, we posted it. I think a lot of people were like, that's really weird to sell your web startup on eBay. But luckily, it got the attention of a few people. It was on TechCrunch, uh, on Reddit, and we ended up getting a bid for, I think our reserve price was $50,000. And the morning of the sale, we actually... Uh, started getting multiple bids. I remember because I was sitting in my friend's apartment in New York. It was super hot. He, you know, he was one year out of college, so he was living in a dump. And I was just at his desktop computer at the time, actually clicking refresh on this eBay auction. And it just kept going up and up and up. Uh, you know, it was a hundred, hundred thousand, one thirteen, one fifty, one eighty six. And then eventually it ended up at $258,100. And to me, that was a tremendously lot of money, you know, a huge amount of money at the time. And I had thought we'd invented a, a new business model for startups. You know, I was pretty ecstatic. Yeah, that's awesome. So how, how do you go from selling your company for, uh, for $218,000 on eBay to nearly a billion dollars years later? Can you tell us <laughs> yeah. a little bit about that? I've never actually 
thought of it in that framed in quite those like in the numerical terms like that. I guess in, you know, we sold Kiko in 2006 and then in 2014 we sold Twitch. Um, so it was eight years later in those eight years after we sold Twitch, we started another startup. The idea was called Justin TV. The idea behind it was basically to create our own, um, live video streaming show, kind of like Big Brother about ourselves, you know, these, you know, entrepreneurs trying to make a reality show is a little bit meta. And we launched this show. We, we spent about six months trying to figure out how to launch it, uh, technically because Online streaming was not very developed. The backend solutions for, for streaming were not very developed at the time. We ended up inventing a bunch of technology, kind of building our own streaming infrastructure and launching this show. And it turns out everybody who went to the site, uh, was like, you guys are incredibly boring. You're programmers. Why are you like, get off your computers and go entertain us. So very quickly we realized we were not very talented actors or kind of like talented entertainers. And we decided to open up the platform for anyone to stream live video. Uh, we did that. And then we continued to work on it. We raised a Series A and a Series B and kind of continued to work on it for the next couple of years. It grew into a pretty big website called Justin TV. And then a couple of years after that, uh, my co-founder came to me and he was like, we should build a live video platform about video games. We should focus Justin TV on video games because that's the only content that I like to watch. And it's really the only content with community that seems to be working very well on our site. So we decided to spend time and, and devote more resources to focusing on that. We ended up calling the project Twitch and launched it as its own separate site and 2011. And then, you know, we were really riding a big wave of people who wanted to create this gaming related content. And it turned out at the same time, gaming companies were focused more and more on competitive gameplay because uh, that's what creates like long-term retention. And, you know, the rest of the story is kind of history. We, in 2014, we ended up selling that company to Amazon for $970 million. And what were some of the oh shit moments um, while you were building that up? Well, I remember we were very skeptical that Twitch would, or that the gaming part of Justin TV would be a thing uh, in the beginning. We were, you know, skeptical that gaming video online was, I mean, it was already the biggest category on YouTube, but kind of like, would it be this form, of, could we form another independent community around it? I think there was a lot of skepticism, especially internally. And so we, we set off uh, and we set a bunch of milestones that we said, if we hit these milestones, we're actually going to believe that this is going to be a, be a thing, right? Like we get, we set the goalpost before we, we started. And so uh, we said, if we, if it grows 15% every month for the first year and 10% every month for the second year, we'll have like the biggest gaming site online, which at the time was gametrailers.com. And in the first six months, we far exceeded that growth. Uh, and I think by the time we launched Twitch, it launched with about 8 million MAU. Of I remember correctly. So that was pretty big at the time. You know, that still, that still wouldn't be a, a small site today. So, you know, that's, that was kind of one of the moments when we were like, Oh, this is real. Then of course, like another oh shed moment was uh, when we got our first major offer for the company and it was, you know, the hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. I remember just like falling down to my knees and like laughing out loud. I was like, and I thought it was incredible because it really was at the time. It probably, probably still is actually, if you think about it and, and how much time and, and money goes into watching people play video games. Wow. And what about on the reverse side? Did you ever think like, oh shit, we might need to shut down or oh shit, maybe this isn't working? Yeah, absolutely. There were many times when uh, we thought that the company was failing or, or the things were like really tough. I mean, there were times when 
definitely times when we had like six weeks of money in the bank. There was no fundraising in sight. That was a pretty rough. There were a couple of times we were sued by entertainment companies that our content was all user generated. Sometimes people would stream content that they didn't have licenses to. And we had where DMCA compliant, people could take down that content, the content owners. But for some of the like suite of tools that we built wasn't good enough. And um, there were you know moments where people threatened to sue us or actually did end up suing us that were kind of like existential crises. And there was a time in, you know, before we launched Twitch, we tried to sell the company and we let this big tech company interview our entire team. You know, this is for a price that was probably in the $20 million to $30 million range. And we would have taken that deal. We let them interview our whole team, which is stupid. You know, entrepreneurs out there, you should never do that. And then they came back to us and they were like, your team is not good enough. Like we are not going to pay for your company. And, you know, obviously that was an incredibly disheartening uh, message uh, at the time, but got to be thankful for it because ultimately if they had bought us, we'd never have created Twitch. Right. Right. And what happened when, when y'all had six weeks of runway and no fundraising in sight? What did you do? Well, we ended up going back to our Series A investors and saying, hey, you got to put more money in the company. And they actually gave us a, an up round, which is probably not super deserved at the time. But it turns out in retrospect, they look pretty good. And so, you know, we you, you kind of just have to pull out all stops and figure out how, to, how are you going to get something um, when, when it comes down to it, you know. And, and in regards to selling the company, you said for the entrepreneurs out there listening, don't ever let a buyer interview your team. You have sold companies successfully. So what would be your advice if there was an entrepreneur that wanted to sell his company and the acquiring company said, we got to interview your team? What would your response be now? No. Anything else other than that? What we've accomplished can be seen in our metrics, in the products we've built. I'd say if you wanted that, you know, that's what you're getting. You're getting these products, you're getting these metrics, you're getting the ability to produce things like this, but you don't get an option on interviewing our team. It's a distraction for the team and there's no upside because either they're buying you because you've built something or they're just aqua hiring the team. And at today's aqua hire prices, you know, you're really just getting jobs. So to me, there's like no upside in letting people interview the team because they're the only thing they can say is like, oh, you're not good. Or we only want half of you. They're not going to say, oh, remember the price range we talked about? Your team is actually so much so good that we're going to pay you twice that. That no corporate development department has ever said that. Gotcha. And around making hard decisions, do you have any tactics when you have two really good things, but you have to pick one. Do you use like regret minimization or any tactics around making hard decisions? I don't know. Sometimes I like to force myself to make the decision by putting in motion things that will result in me having to do the thing. Theoretically, I want to do, but maybe I, I find hard to do, if that makes sense. You know, like, so for Just DV itself is a great example because it started off as us trying to make our own live show. And I wanted to do it because I thought it was an interesting idea, but I was kind of scared to actually do it. So I told, you know, I was like, we're going to start this company. We start, you know, we built all the technology. And I remember the night before we launched the show where I was committing to stream my life 24-7, I was like, what did I agree to? But, you know, at the time, we'd already kind of, I'd agreed with everybody that I would do this. And we'd already invested in creating all the technology and infrastructure to do it. So it kind of made me, it forced me in a way to, to, to do this thing that I found kind of uncomfortable, actually. Have you done that recently with anything where you've told somebody, hey, here's what I'm about to do to force you to do something? Well, the new company, Atrium, is kind of like that in a way. I was I was talking about the idea with a bunch of people and one of my co-founders, Augie Rico, and I had talked about it for weeks, actually, probably maybe over a month or two. And at a certain point, he was like, if you don't start this company, I'm going to, like with or without you. And that really made me realize, oh, I should like, this is an idea. This is a real idea. We sh I should start this company. And so in a way, he convinced me 
uh, that it was a good idea to get back into startups and start something new. And, and you're currently the CEO, is that correct? That's right. It's, you know, I went through every kind of iteration. After selling Twitch, I was I worked at Y Combinator investing as a partner there for a couple of years. And I really want to get back closer to starting something, but I wasn't sure that I really wanted to be responsible in the same way as, as I had in the past. And so I thought maybe I should incubate a bunch of companies and you know, with other people, but then I ended up starting this one company and diving all the way in and kind of being 110% in again, which is, you know, can be pretty stressful at times, but overall, I'm pretty uh, satisfied with my decision. And what's uh, your day-to-day look like? Do you have any morning, afternoon, or evening routines being startup founder? I try to work out a couple times a week regularly. I was doing that a lot more when I was, before we started this company in the last year and a half or so, I've been spending a lot of time on Snapchat making content about startup. And that was pretty fun for me, but I was also like a way that I worked out all the time because uh, I would just do it while uh, riding my exercise bike. And unfortunately, starting this new company, I've basically fallen off a lot. So, I've, you know, I try to make sure I get, still uh, work out regularly in the mornings. I got to get a trainer to you know come by and you know, I have a trainer that comes by and, and forces me basically. Outside of that, it's mostly back-to-back meetings all day, every day. We've grown Atrium, you know, started off as this idea to innovate on legal services, provide startups with faster, more transparent legal. And we started off with just this idea and and, uh, myself and four other co-founders in, I guess it was May. Uh, Now the company's around 45 people and, and so... You know, there's, we've kind of done a lot and there's, there's a lot of work to do still, but there's, you know, it's kind of nonstop management and checking in and making sure things are, are going in the right direction. And you've started a number of companies, you've invested in a number of companies. What first order principles should a new technology project or startup follow? In what sense? Well, I guess a better way to ask it might be, where have you seen startup founders fuck up the most? That's a good question. I think that oftentimes the ways people mess up, number one is they have this idea of what they don't base what they're doing on reality or customer feedback or like feedback from trying things. They base it on you know their preconceived notions of how uh, something should work or, you know, their own limited worldview or the, what's in their head that they really want to create. And, you know, the one, one in 20 or maybe even one in 10 get it right. You know, it turns out they're a genius. They, they have the experience or they know what, what to build. Um, but nine out of 10 probably get it completely wrong. And I think the best, uh, founders and the best startups really base what they're doing on constantly getting feedback from the market, from customers and adjusting their plans accordingly. And uh, that's a hard thing to learn. I, usually people have to learn that the hard way, to be honest. I, I think most problems in startups stem from either that or from the inability of uh, co-founders and early employees to get along and find common cause and work together um, you know, uh, towards a specific goal uh, where each of, each of them, the members of the team, is kind of um, utilizing their comparative advantage. Uh, if that makes sense. Those are probably the two biggest things that get fucked up. Got it. And recruiting is a challenge, you know, that, that we often hear from almost everyone. How have you found um, kind of diamonds in the rough and untapped talent? And what's your advice around recruiting? Interesting, because I, I just got off a recruiting call just now. I think it's all about finding people who are self-starters and people who are, who have what I call ownership. I want to find people who are end-to-end problem solvers who, where I'm like, they're not just like an engineer. They're not just a product person, designer. What they are is someone who, if you're like, this is a problem, there's a problem in this area. They they can go through all the steps to solve that problem. They can define what the problem is and they can gather the data to clearly define the problem. They can 
come up with a solution with uh, the various stakeholders and socialize that solution. Then they can execute the delivery of that solution, and then they can get feedback to see if it worked and iterate. And very few people can actually do the entire thing, stack of things you need to do to solve a problem. And I think it's really important to actually uh, find people who can. And then what I like to, you know, from a tactical perspective in terms of like how to close people, what's worked really well for me recently is to ask the candidates, what do you want? You know, outside of comp, everybody wants compensation, of course, and they want equity and salary. But if we can make those things work, what do you actually want to get out of this? And for me, a lot of people want to come work at HM and, and other startups that I've been involved with in the past because they want to learn something about startups from me. Maybe they want to start their own startup in the future. Uh, maybe they want uh, some sort of mentorship. And if it's within my ability to help them with those things, then I like to say, hey, I, can, I can't I can promise, you know, the startup is going to be successful, but I can promise that you'll get this kind of exposure to, to startups or you'll learn these things about startups or how I think about certain um, applications of technology to business. And that's been a pretty compelling sales pitch so far. Got it. What about before you had that, before Justin Kahn was Justin Kahn, how did you go about recruiting? If you just started a company and you have even capital to you know, employ people that you have something to teach your team, right? That's already a, a lot of milestones that, that you've gone through. So I definitely think that, you know, maybe you don't have the, maybe, you know, the Silicon Valley celebrity going for you, but you, you know, people do have a lot that they can teach. And so one of the other things that we did in the very beginning was really try to give people ownership over the things that they were doing, right? Like, so if it was like a, a technical project, it was like, hey, you're, you know, you're going to have the ability to kind of up level from where you, you've been at because you're going to be more involved in the design or architecture of this thing, or you're going to be in charge of the sales team for, for the first time. Like finding people who are like right for, for whom the job is like one level up, one step up and, you know, a challenge for them, but an opportunity that that's, I, I think the sweet spot in my opinion. Got it. Let's say people don't have a startup right now who are listening, but they're in college about to graduate. What would be your advice to young people trying to figure out you know, what they want to do with their lives? real key answer is to like try a bunch of different things. I generally tell people they should optimize for learning. You know, you should go to places where you're going to learn the most. Sometimes that's a bigger company. If you have specific interests, oftentimes it's going to a startup because in a startup, you know, you're going to learn a lot in a fast growing startup and it's going to be painful oftentimes because things won't be well managed or well organized. But there's lots of that. Those are the times when you have the opportunities to learn a lot and often learn beyond one specific job role. So, so, you know, I usually tell people to optimize for learning and optimize for the opportunity to see different things. Gotcha. And what do you wish you had started doing or done more of much earlier in your life, specifically like actions or activities with compounding effects? I definitely wish I had like become a better programmer because it's, I don't really have time. It's kind of too late for me. Well, it's not too late for me, but it's just, I guess I did put in like probably my 10,000 hours of web development time, but you know, CS fundamental skills are pretty lacking. And so that's one thing outside of that, you know, maybe I do wish that I think that there's a level of confidence that's come from running companies and interacting with, uh, you know, kind of other entrepreneurs and um, having some success. And that's really great. I think a lot of people who I admire who are younger than me, they got started, they built up their confidence in other ways uh, much earlier. I think it's it's kind of hard to like force, but I, I wish I had, I was always a kind of a little bit of a more of a shy extrovert in the beginning. And I wish I had worked on being more comfortable around other people and being more comfortable communicating with other people earlier on in my life. And what about now? What's something that you know you should do, but you haven't done yet? Part of my goal with Atrium is that I want to try to build a bigger company than Twitch and see if I deserve to run it. 
And so I'm, that's kind of the goal I had in mind when I started. And I am not sure if I'm, I'll be able to, but it's kind of a personal challenge. And so I guess I'm actively engaged in trying to, to level myself up in a way. And that, that was the big thing. Outside of that, I probably should do more cardio. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what would you say your biggest challenge is outside of growing Atrium to larger than Twitch? Well, I think it's really about execution. It's about making sure that... So we started off by raising $10.5 million. I think there I got a lot of credit for past success, but it's really one of the things that you have to be careful of, I think, as a second-time entrepreneur uh, who's been successful before is that you're like actually applying the capital in a intelligent way instead of just, you know, like trying to force growth or um, just staff up for the sake of having a company. And uh, I think those are those are some of the things that I have to pay extra close attention to and make sure make sure that we're doing. And I think we're executing uh, pretty well and against something that's actually working. But, you know, I'm always a little bit paranoid about that. When you feel lethargic, what are some of the things that you do to get motivated? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Actually, I like to go work out, do um, you know, do do some exercise, bike or rowing machine, and I like to make. And the other thing I do that helps me get things done is just making a list. It goes back to when I was a kid. You know, my mom used to like make make lists and be like, "Here, you have to do the chores on this list." And I feel like if I I, can, I feel that I can tackle anything if I just write it down and write a list of things down, and if any one of those things is too difficult or like seems undoable because it's like too large of a project or I don't know where to start. I try to break that task down into like a smaller list. Uh, I mean, that's basically it. I'm, it's, it's a pretty simple process, you know, just making lists. Yeah. Gotcha. And then I want to talk just a little bit about controversy. What's something controversial today that you think will be like commonplace tomorrow? I mean, I think China will be like one of the, probably the number one innovator for technology in maybe not tomorrow, but in 10 to 20 years. I think there's already lots of places that um, they are surpassing the United States in innovation. And I think that people in Silicon Valley don't really pay that much attention to it. And so I think, I don't know if that's controversial, but I think it's, it's going to be a fact pretty soon. Um, that's, that might be one. I mean, you know, eating meat, I feel like eating meat is something that's like, people are not going to like the society of, of tomorrow will look down on and I think was like pretty horrific, like factory farming and but today we're like pretty okay with it. And what about like entrepreneurs and controversy? How do you think entrepreneurs should deal with controversy? Do you think they should shy away from it, seek it, or just not back Well, away I think controversy is generally irrelevant. Controversy, I think, is generally irrelevant to the success or failure of your startup. I mean, I think anything that distracts you from talking to your customers and building things based on what the feedback that you've observed them giving is a distraction. You should only be doing things that are like a second order of those things, you know, like either talking to users, building stuff for them and then testing or something that you need to do to do those things. If that makes sense, right? Like hiring engineers might be your bottleneck on like building. So you need to hire engineers. So you need to set up a hiring process, right? Or you're like, can't find enough customers. So you need to set up a sales process and hire a salesperson. Like all the things that you do in a company are basically in order to get customers, deliver the product to them and get feedback from them. And so, you know, if you kind of just approach it from first principles, I think that will, will give you a pretty good roadmap of what you should and shouldn't be doing. Yeah, because I guess what's, what's putting yourself live streaming your life back with Justin TV, would you say that was controversial at the time? I think it was more stupid. People were like, why is this guy doing it? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I guess today we have people like Jake Paul. We, we met together at your house. Mm -hmm. what, do you, what do you think about what he's doing? And you know, I guess he's in some ways. Well, yeah, social media is a big business now. And it's, I guess before, you know, when I, we started, Twitter was, 
not big. Facebook was not an open platform really in the same way it is today. So, um, yeah, I think that, um, and there was no Instagram and there was no Snapchat. So definitely there's downplay, like the ability to uh, like that social media is an interesting and big business. Um, and being a, you know, influencer on social media is obviously like can be really big. I just, I think for us at the time, we were a little early, but we also didn't really have the personalities of like an entertainer. You know, we weren't very good at it. And so it was probably not the right founder market fit in a way, you know? And what about favorite books or podcasts that you'd recommend to, to young people? Sure. My favorite book is Shogun, a book novel by James Clavell, who's an amazing writer. And in Shogun, it tells the story of this English. He's like a navigator pilot like of, of ships in the 1600s. And he gets marooned in Japan and tells his, it's like an adventure story. But I, it's a great novel, both from an entertainment perspective, but also from a uh, life lessons perspective. I use a lot of the things I learned in that book in the op running and operating of startups. Uh, I think it's like there's a lot of strategic and tactical gems in the, in the book. And so I think it's a great book. People should read it. I mean, more conventional terms of things that have like kind of helped me in, on the, in my businesses. High output management is like the Bible. Uh, anyone who wants to be a founder should read it. So that's uh, probably my second recommendation. Who would be three people that kind of mentored you um, in your career that you would want to thank and and then also the biggest lesson that you've learned from those people? Yeah. So, you know, the first would be my mom probably because she was an entrepreneur and kind of learned how to work hard from watching her. And, um, you know, she obviously gave us a bit of training there too. And so, you know, my younger brother is a, also a successful entrepreneur. He's one of the co-founders of Cruise. I don't think either of us could have done it without our mom. So, you know, that would be a first. And second, for just going chronologically, uh, I had a early boss when I was uh, in high school and then in college as a you know, summer internship. Uh, his name is Carl Forsberg. He's a lawyer in Seattle and taught me a lot of things actually, but also a super hard worker. So really just reinforcing that lesson. Um, but I remember really kind of like one thing, one time we were uh, doing something and I was like goofing off and he was just like, did you come to mess around or did you come to focus? Like, on, is that contributing anything to the task at hand? You know, he was all business when it came to work. He was a really fun guy, actually, and a nice guy. But when it came to like work meetings and 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 like focus and, and like work, he was he was all business. And I think uh, I learned a lot from him uh, there. And then uh, lastly, really Paul Graham, founder of Y Combinator. You know, I wouldn't have started a startup if it wasn't for Paul backing us very early with Kiko, and he gave us the Bible in terms of just you know the how to do it how to start the playbook of like how to start a how to start a startup who do you, how do you talk to your customers kind of really opened our eyes to the fact that anyone can really do it and you know i think every all the success that we've had is really all started off with paul in a way so uh, those are those are my three awesome well thank you justin for taking the time cool thanks for it Thank you once again for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Justin Khan. Thank you so much again, Justin, for coming on the show. It was awesome listening to such a successful founder talk about how he got started and some of the crazy things he experienced along the journey. It was also very interesting hearing the process of starting a startup and why you shouldn't let the acquirer interview your team. That will be helpful for any founders listening. You can find all these links in the description. You can also follow your host, Corey Levy, on Twitter at Corey. Thank you once again. And other than that, stay tuned. We have episodes every Tuesday and we'll see you next week on Off Record.